Well, good after, well, good morning for a few minutes for those in Ontario uh, and anyone else across the country. Good morning. My name is David Coletto. I'm CEO of Abacus Data, and it's a pleasure to be with you live from our head office in downtown Ottawa. Um, it's been a pleasure over the last few weeks doing the On Pulse project with our partners at Summa Strategies and Spark Advocacy. We've got a, a packed hour for you today. I'm going to walk you through some numbers from our post-election survey, and then we're going to turn it over to a really smart panel of, of uh, consultants and GR experts and political strategists from Summa Strategies. But before I do that, I want to share some, some data, some insights from our recent survey. And what we did is after the election, we went into the field and we interviewed over 2,000 Ontarians. Now, before we get into that data, there's, I think, four key points uh, that are worth noting from the election in our tracking that we did uh, since early April. The first is, if you look at the polling averages over the course of the campaign, you know, at the, at the start of the campaign in early April, or at the end of April, mind you, we found that the Tories had a pretty significant lead over the Liberals, with the Liberals and the New Democrats really bunched up uh, around the, either the high or low 20s. And what the story of this campaign showed was that over time, it became far more competitive. There was a point in which the polling averages had the New Democrats slightly ahead of the progressive conservatives, but it seemingly, the New Democrats peaked a little too early. And in the closing days of the campaign, uh, the polls suggested that the Tories were going to, to win a majority government, and that's what we ended up with. So what, what, what explains some of this? Well, the first is, there's no doubt this was a change election. In our polling and other polling, we saw consistently that at least 8 out of 10 Ontarians said that it was time for a change. And you can look, again, early April all the way to uh, basically a week before E-Day, you had about the same number saying that. So the Liberal campaign, the incumbents were not really able to change the story. Bruce Anderson and I like to say that, that Ontarians were determined to change their government. At the end of the day, they did that. The Liberals ended up in third, but this was clearly... Uh, the starting narrative of this campaign. Now, beyond that, though, you know, some have said the campaign didn't matter, but it did matter for a number of different factors, and one of those was how people felt about the leaders, in particular Doug Ford and Andrea Horvath. You can see in our polling that at the beginning of the campaign, Mr. Ford actually had relatively good numbers. Now, more people viewed him negatively than positively, which is always a challenge for a political leader, but he started the campaign uh, in a better shape than Tim Hudak, the previous PC leader, did in the 2014 election. But by the end of the election, almost half of Ontarians said they had a negative view of Mr. Ford. So there's no doubt that whether it was the pre-writ liberal attack ads or others sort of questioning Mr. Ford or maybe some of the things Mr. Ford did himself uh, certainly rose his negative numbers. Now, on the flip side, we saw Ms. Horvath enter this election in a position that's somewhat surprising to many that almost one out of five Ontarians didn't really know who she was, despite the fact that this was going to be her third election campaign. But you can see that the more people saw Andrea Horvath, the more they liked her, to the point where at the end of the campaign, 42% had a positive view of her, only 20% negative. So this was a good campaign for the New Democrats. It put Ms. Horvath front and center. And again, um, we, we typically see people uh, less happy or less positive about leaders over the course of the campaign, that was not the case for the New Democrats. Now, one of the key factors in the final days of the campaign were how would people feel about different outcomes? You had the Premier conceding that she wasn't going to win the election and that she would prefer, and most Ontarians, she said, would prefer some form of minority government. But one of the facts is that throughout the campaign, we saw consistently more people would be dismayed, this red bar here, uh, with a Liberal government. That was driving that change vote. 
But what I was watching for was what percentage of Ontarians would be dismayed with a PC government led by Doug Ford? And in, at the end of the day, despite more people fearing a PC government than an NDP government, and I think that's a key fact, despite the, the, uh, the, um, the, sort of the impact of the Bob Ray legacy on the New Democrat brand seemed to be consistent here, it, it basically disappeared by the end. Um, my, I still feel that 43% feeling dismayed about a, a Doug Ford government was still too low for enough people to be energized to vote strategically. So at the end of the day, the Tory campaign was successful in raising maybe doubts about the New Democrats and taking some attention away from themselves. So it was a change election. The PCs from the very beginning had their vote held together and mobilized support in order to win. And the New Democrats, despite having good momentum right at the start, it stalled, and, and, but they still executed quite a good campaign from the numbers perspective. So if we ask ourselves then, what's the anatomy of this PC victory? Well, when we ask people open-ended, what's your reaction to the election? We, give them, we let them to write any word that they want. You can see this is a word cloud representing their reactions. Uh, a real mix. Uh, despite what I think was, particularly in, in some uh, media commentary about a, a real fear of Doug Ford or a disappointment, Yes, disappointed is, is high up on this, on this word cloud, but you see a lot of other positive words. A lot of people saying good or great or happy or hopeful, right? So on the one hand, while there were some who were dismayed and really dis disliked the idea of a Doug Ford government, we also saw a lot of hope that, that change was coming and a new form of government was going to be. So much so that when we ask people, how do you feel directly about this election? Are you happy about it? Are you upset? You can find that a majority, 56%, say they are either happy or accepting of the election outcome. Now, that for some says, well, this is, you know, we wish more people would be happy with the outcome of an election. But it, again, under, uh, underscores what I think is um, a general acceptance that people want to change, and so they got what they wanted at the core. But for some who are upset or really just uh, unhappy with the outcome, it was still a minority. And so I think that the Ford administration that's coming into office uh, will have at least some goodwill with people who are waiting to see how they respond in those first few days. Now, the, the Ford victory was broad. It was uh, across the province. You can see just a quick map here, except for northern Ontario and in pockets in some uh, larger urban centers across the country. It's a blue belt from east to southwest. Uh, and significant blue numbers around the GTA and even in Toronto. When we look at demographics, one of the key facts to keep in mind is that Mr. Ford won largely because older voters came out and voted, and they voted for him, particularly older men. You can see a 15-point gap among men aged 45 and older going to the Tories. On the flip side, and perhaps why the New Democrats were at a disadvantage in this campaign, is they relied more heavily on younger voters, particularly younger women, where you saw a big gender gap uh, between the Tories and, and the New Democrats. Also a key, key divider, homeowners went for the PCs by 14 points, renters to the New Democrats by 11, and those younger who still live with their family, you can see overwhelmingly voted uh, for, for the NDP. Most interesting, in our survey we asked people, do you think of yourself as a liberal, a New Democrat, a progressive conservative, and despite how you vote, right, how do you identify? And what's fascinating is, you know, those who identify as conservative overwhelmingly voted PC, and those who identify as New Democrat overwhelmingly voted NDP. But among liberals, which represent about 28% or 26% of the province, still identify as liberal despite the fact that they came third, only half voted liberal. So this was an election in which those self-identifying liberals said, I just can't do it. 
I want change and I'm not going to vote uh, maybe my identity, I'm going to vote for another party and the New Democrats really benefited from that, that leakage. Uh, lastly, on, on the question of this election, when did people make up their mind? And one of the fascinating and important things to keep in mind is that half of those who decided before, well before this election even started, were going to likely vote for the progressive conservatives, and that represents two-thirds of their support. So they had 67% of their supporters locked in before the writ was dropped, before any ads showed up, maybe even before Doug Ford became leader of the party. This was something that the Tories always had an advantage on. That as you got closer to election day, that's when people started deciding more in favor of the New Democrats, which does suggest the campaign mattered, certainly for the NDP, but maybe less so for the progressive conservatives. Last thing I wanted to touch on before I go into the future is, was this a populist uprising? Lots of commentary about populism and Trump and Brexit, and, and was Ontario experiencing its own version of that kind of experience? And one of the things researchers often look at is, was there an education gap? Education gaps, those who have higher levels of education typically uh, don't vote for populist parties. In this case, we actually don't see much of a wedge across education. Those with a university degree uh, were just as likely to vote progressive conservative as those with college or high school or less. And this is one indication uh, that maybe this wasn't a, a populist uprising. Number two is, I don't see any evidence that those who voted PC were more or, or exhibited or ex expressed more financial insecurity than those who didn't. In fact, those who voted NDP were more likely to say they feel financially insecure than progressive conservative voters. So at the end of the day, I don't think, and again, I still have time to go through our evidence, I don't think that this was, not to say that Doug Ford didn't run a populist campaign, but I don't think voters responded to a populist campaign. You had the progressive conservatives holding their base of about 30 to 32 percent, who are more naturally populist, more naturally um, questioning of immigration or diversity or some social issues but you had this extra five, six, seven percent who I think simply wanted to make life a little more affordable. They liked the idea of a tax cut and that's what drew them to the PCs. So finally, what then does this new government have to do? And we asked a few questions about what they expect. Now, first we asked open-ended, and this is a word cloud, what's the best thing you think Doug Ford's going to do? And you can see the answer's pretty clear. Uh, those who voted for him in particular, but also those who didn't, do at least recognize that we're likely to see some form of lower taxation uh, and that's big and bold. Jobs shows up a little bit, hydro rates. The question of about affordability, making life more affordable, I think was central to the argument that Doug Ford was selling. Now, on the flip side, when we ask people, what are the big downsides that you expect? You can see healthcare is big and bold. I think there is a concern that in order to implement his platform, uh, he's gonna have to make some cuts somewhere and people are concerned that their social services like healthcare, like education, like childcare, uh, might be affected, and there's also some concern that this is going to lead to higher debt, that the uncosted platform of Mr. Ford, which was a theme that resonated with some voters, uh, might be a problem going forward. Lastly, we asked people, we gave them a list of some of the promises that Ford made uh, during the campaign, and we asked them, do you want him to follow through with these promises or not? And what we learned was that things like the gas tax cut, uh, the, the, the uh, bringing an auditor to audit the finances, firing the CEO of Hydro One, broad support among most Ontarians, particularly those you can see on that far uh, column there who voted progressive conservative. Eliminating the cap and trade, something he's already announced he's doing on day one. You can find almost half of Ontarians say he should follow through with that. More than actually voted PC, but you can see even among Tories, there's some who say maybe we shouldn't, but the bulk say we should. Interestingly, Buck a beer, 
down at the bottom of the list, um, Ontarians are generally split on whether they want that to happen. A lot of people say, I don't really care one way or the other. Uh, so it probably motivated his base, but wasn't uh, as big a vote winner maybe as we suggested, but did align, I think, effectively with his broader theme of affordability. So to wrap up then, what our data suggests, and we'll have some more in the, in the coming days, was this PC majority, while it was a minority of the vote, was broad-based. They, they didn't do exceptionally poorly among younger voters. They didn't do poorly in urban uh, or, or, or suburban areas. They won many seats in all of those different types of communities. And that for most of this PC agenda, despite what some might feel it's, it's, it, it doesn't make sense or it doesn't add up, from a voter's perspective, a, a lot of those items were popular, which is why I think he got a lot of traction. And while concern about Ford increased over the campaign, my sense is it didn't, there wasn't enough change in impressions uh, to change minds and, and change really the outcome of this election. So that's our story uh, from the data perspective. I'm now going to shift over and uh, introduce some of the panelists. So I've got to my right Kate Harrison, who's a senior consultant at Summa Strategies, Robin McLaughlin, vice president, and Kristen Wilton, a consultant at Summa Strategies. So thanks for joining us. Um, you know, let's react first to, to, to some of the research we were doing, because I think one of the great things about the On Pulse project and all of us working together is uh, we really tried to get below the horse race and understand right. what were the, what, what was driving voters, how were people reacting to the campaign. Um, so from your sense, looking at the results and, and looking at what we were tracking over the campaign itself from public opinion, what's your big takeaway uh, from, from these results? And I'll, I'll start with you, yeah. Kate. Uh, I think for me, the biggest takeaway was how little the campaign actually mattered for the PCs at the end of the day. You know, there's some really interesting data there in terms of um, kind of voter intention at the outset uh, for Doug Ford and the PC government, whether or not that changed. I think the campaign certainly mattered for the NDP uh, and as well for the Liberals. I won't take away any of Kristen and Robin's points that I'm sure they're about to make. Um, but for me, that was, a, that was a major takeaway, is people that had determined early that they were going to vote PC, which we understand to be about two-thirds of PC voters, uh, stuck with them. Mm -hmm. So the attempts to try and kind of derail the Ford campaign uh, didn't stick with voters. Uh, and in that regard, I think another major takeaway uh, would be uh, the, the discipline that the Ford campaign uh, exercised did work. Uh, thinking back to 2007, 2011 and 14, uh, the PC campaigns were all derailed by by uh, one-off issues. Uh, that didn't happen this time. Uh, and I think that discipline worked and it kept those voters on side. Yeah, Robin, what do you think? Yeah, first, I mean, just to comment on the, the, the discipline, I mean, you're setting a pretty low bar with the PC Party of Ontario in terms of having a disciplined campaign. So <laughs> to, to refer to Doug Ford's campaign as disciplined would be, I think, a little bit of a stretch. Uh, what I think mattered was it was a, a number of issues rather than one big issue uh, that were hurting the, the, the Ford campaign on the road. Uh, and none of them really sunk in in the way that uh, in the past, Hudak's like firing 100,000 right. public service uh, servants really did. Uh, and it does help when you try to cut the media completely out of your campaign that maybe your, uh, your, your, um, uh, you know, your stumbles during the campaign don't don't get noticed as much. But they did show up anyway, even without a bus. They, he still managed to get a lot of coverage. Yeah, and some additional to his, his own media as well. That's true. Uh, but so, I mean, I, I'll take to your point, campaigns matter. And this one, it certainly did. For the PCs, they were successful because uh, they, they, it didn't matter as much for them, as Kate said. But for, for this change election, and there's no doubt this was a change election, the greatest change you saw was amongst uh, the, the NDP vote and the, what you could call the, the left of center progressive vote. That's where we saw the, the greatest change. Uh, so, 
it certainly mattered for the NDP. It certainly mattered for the Liberal Party. Uh, and the challenge, though, was that the NDP was not able to sustain what was the most significant movement that happened in the campaign was a coalescing of progressive votes around the NDP. Uh, it happened early. It happened fairly uh, in a sustained manner. Uh, but it peaked too early. And I think there's no doubt about that. So the only other thing I'd point to that's linked to that is I think we saw in this campaign that advertising really matters. Uh, and of course, I'm saying that amongst our friends at Spark Advocacy, uh, advertising experts. But uh, ads mattered because, yes, the NDP ran its biggest campaign ever. Uh, yes, the NDP had a much bigger ad buy than 2014, but it was still vastly outspent by the Liberals and the Conservatives. And if you lived in the GTA, you saw the attack ad on the NDP that we were going to raise the price of gas 35 cents a liter over and over again. Any sports match you were watching, any show you always watched, you saw that ad. Of course, it was a falsehood uh, based on one candidate's comments from long before the election. But I think that really did help. So for the NDP, a lesson learned is certainly that we need to get better at our own negative ads, at our own contrast ads. Yeah, if we want to talk about ad buy, it's funny because no matter how much the Liberals spent, it still wasn't working. They were still staying, they were still low in the polls no matter what. They started with care over cuts, then they moved into sorry, not sorry, and then they had to do damage control in the last week. And if there's one um, takeaway I think I can take is conceding in the last week of the election, I don't think was a great strategy. Um, I, you just, you don't normally see something like that. I understand, I do understand why she did it. She was trying to disconnect herself from voters, trying to put the focus back on local candidates. But, um, but it's still, it just, it wasn't working. I don't think, like they had a prediction anywhere from zero to three seats. Kind of shocked that they got seven seats. I think it just caused a lot of confusion. In, in an election, there's a large number of undecided voters anyway, especially in this election. Right. Um, the polls showed that throughout the whole, the whole campaign. And now for what people don't understand, and us who live and breathe politics, we, we know that there's probably a political strategist who is behind that whole thing. For the everyday Joe who is just kind of watching, they don't understand. They think that that was Kathleen's big, big plan. It didn't work, and she had to wear that. So that was, um, that, I think that was the biggest takeaway I took I might, from that. The only thing I'd say to that is, I, I think Kristen's right. So the everyday voter, the I'm not affiliated with a party, the, the people that Abacus is uh, talking about, uh, you know, I don't think it worked for them, but I think it wasn't targeted at them. I think it was targeted at adamant liberals that were contemplating voting for Horvath. And I think that gave those traditional liberal voters who didn't like Kathleen Wynne the freedom to go vote for their liberal candidate. And I think it's the reason that you saw, uh, you know, seven liberals elected, and I think it definitely hurt the NDP. Uh, the liberals' endgame strategy argued equivalency between the NDP and Doug Ford. Uh, and that, I think, was potentially the nail in the coffin to the potential NDP government. It also, I think, signaled to those voters wanting change that change was going to come. Yeah, right, right? So if this election, at, up until that moment when sure. the Premier conceded, was, you know, there was half of those who wanted to vote Liberal thought the Liberals were going to win the election still, mm -hmm. right? right? Yeah. So we, we live in a bubble, and maybe people watching on Twitter live in a little bit of a bubble, but the average voter doesn't always follow as closely as we do. And so there was some hope. Well, she's premier. Maybe she's mm -hmm. going to stay premier. Mm -hmm. That kind of burst that bubble a little bit, right? And But we didn't see any movement in the numbers. So the liberal numbers held after mm -hmm. that. It, there wasn't this flock to New Democrats. And in fact, it may have helped the Tories, not just because you're yeah. attacking the New Democrats, mm -hmm. but it basically all but crowned Doug Ford, the change Somebody agent. And change is yeah. coming. Yeah. I'm done. See you, folks. Yeah. And so. And I, ha I have to say, uh, my initial 
uh, takeaway from that concession was that it was going to be a gift to the NDP. Because uh, I thought, well, for sure, a leaderless party, how could a liberal uh, voter not uh, then turn around and vote for Andrea Horvath? And I'm sure that they were hoping that that would be the case. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It did have the impact where, uh, you know, your die-in-the-wool liberal voter, which is about 20% of voters in this election, one in five people were going to go liberal no matter what, said, you know what, I'm going to stick with my team. And that was enough in a lot of cases for, for blue to come up the middle. And, and we saw in our, our data, right, about, I think it was about one out of five liberal identifiers right. voted conservative, yeah. mm -hmm. right? And so we don't know when that actual happened, if, if that was because of this. Mm -hmm. I also think back to the, the 2011 federal election, right? There was a moment that it seemed like Jack Layton might run away with it, mm -hmm. and you had conservatives basically, I think, like dog whistling to, if there are such things as blue liberals, come vote for us to yeah. stop the socialist horde. There was, yeah. you could imagine people interpreting it in the same way, that at the same time that the premier was saying, I quit, I can't win. Um, and by the way, a, a Horvath majority is just as bad as a Doug Ford majority. Mm. That's a signal to some of her more maybe business friendly liberals to go and just plug their nose and vote for it, or not should vote at all. And my, my bitter partisan moment here, I can say that don't ever think that a campaign is the same as governing at all. When you govern, I think uh, leaders can take high ground, they can take moral high ground, and they can look beyond uh, their electoral cycle and think about their legacy. Uh, liberals literally, and this is my partisan comment, uh, we're more okay with dismantling the progressive agenda uh, with Doug Ford as premier than losing the campaign. And that's because during a campaign, our system works such that a campaign's job is to win the most number of seats for your party. It's not to look out for the legacy of the policies. On, on that note, I'm, I'm talking about governing then. So let's, let's, let's look forward then and, and talk a little bit about what next. So, you know, and, and maybe take off as much as you can, your partisan hats for a moment, put on your GR professional hats, right? And say to yourselves, okay, if you are thinking about what mandate this government actually has mm -hmm. and how they're gonna approach, and we've already seen in the first few, they're not even sworn in yet, and they're moving pretty quickly on some of the premier kind of policies they've, they've put in the window. Describe the mandate that you think the PCs received then and, and how they're interpreting that mandate as they move forward with their agenda. And I'll start with you, Kate. Well, you mentioned the fact that the support for the PCs is broad-based, um, and it, it does span the province, span different ages. I, I think that the PC government is feeling very emboldened by the mandate. They will look at it as a strong mandate uh, to proceed with the items they want to proceed with. Now, uh, Doug Ford is a, is a bread and butter, meat and potatoes kind of leader. I think he's going to look at that priority list he put out during the campaign and very directly match the priorities to mandate letters and what he expects his ministers to do. Uh, I don't think that this is going to be a forum for, you know, 10, 15 year policy agendas. We're talking about really realistically, what can we achieve in this mandate? Uh, what are the pocketbook issues that we can achieve? Uh, and we already have seen over the last week uh, decisions made around cap and trade, uh, scaling back some of those uh, some of those carbon uh, or cap and trade funded programs uh, that will allow Doug Ford to walk into the legislature uh, on June 29th or, or after, whenever he's sworn in, uh, and say, "I've already saved 600 million dollars uh, in taxpayer money uh, by removing us from this uh, from this cap and trade system," and directly equating his actions to how much revenue can be saved uh, for, uh, for taxpayers is, I think, uh, a winner from a, from a GR perspective. So I expect a direct correlation between that priority list and what he's expected to do. I don't think it's going to go much beyond that. He's been very clear. Everybody can access and see what he wants to achieve. 
Uh, so govern your GR around those principles and how you can enable that. Well, just, just to fact check, there's two sides of the ledger for cap and trade. So yes, he got rid of the $600,000 in expenditure. He also got rid of the $2 billion in, or $600 million in expenditure. He also got rid of the $2 billion in revenue. So uh, there's no way you could possibly suggest that getting rid of cap and trade is a revenue positive uh, initiative for, for the government. Uh, I, you know, I generally agree with Kate's comments, although I wouldn't suggest that he really has much of a pure mandate on policy. This wasn't a policy election. You, you certainly highlighted the, the initiatives or the announcements he made that could be viewed favorably, particularly by PC voters. But I bet you if you ask everybody why they voted for Doug Ford, not a lot of them just voted specifically for a gas tax. They voted for change. So his mandate is more about change, yes, broadly about affordability, broadly about, I think, um, uh, about good government, I would say, because a lot of people were voting for change because they felt that Kathleen Wynne was not delivering good government. Um, but he actually, I think it'll be interesting to see those first 100 days because Kate's right, he'll try to check off things that were announced, but I don't think that the people that voted for Doug Ford uh, voted specifically for his policy agenda. Maybe because he didn't have a fully costed platform, but he has populist-styled initiatives. I mean, you're gonna make gas cheaper for me? You're gonna make hydro cheaper for me? Yes, we can all support that. At what cost? Things get a little bit more complicated. But I think more than anything, he has to demonstrate that he's not Kathleen Wynne and that Ontario is going in, in a different direction that involves growth and jobs. I just, sorry, I really quickly want to jump in there. I would, I would challenge that people didn't uh, vote necessarily for his policies um, because to your point on the cost of platform, uh, that perhaps would have had a uh, bigger impact if there was policies and priorities out there that people reacted negatively to. Uh, so I would say, you know, fair point. Um, was it the motivating factor? Uh, his policy agenda, no. The change question, though, was answered very early. Mm -hmm. So policy and platform, I actually think, mattered more uh, this time around uh, because the change question had already been answered. Uh, so there wasn't enough policy in there to scare yeah. people away uh, from not voting PC, uh, but there was enough in there, enough pocketbook issues in there that I think people were attracted to that. No, I want to touch on that. I agree with a lot of what you guys say. And obviously, yes, it was uh, a change election. And I think Doug Ford is just going to come out swinging because he is that stark contrast of change that Ontarians wanted. And, <clears throat> excuse me, they took a risk, I think, because he doesn't have that provincial experience. He has the, the as a councillor, he has that experience. Um, but I think like he was a risk and he's going to have to prove that he was the right risk to take over, or over Andrew Horvath. Um, but coming in, yeah, it's going to be like a checkbox. He's already uh, scrapped the cap and trade. And think about media headlines. The PC government already saves taxpayers $600 million. Yeah. Doesn't touch on the revenue, the two point whatever billion dollars, but that's a more attractive headline is, yeah. we just I saved the, you this amount of yeah, dollars. I think the best analogy that I could like interpret the way I'm seeing public opinion is there is a minority, a large major minority of people who I felt... Um, you know, imagine a balloon that is just filling up and filling up and filling up, and they were feeling the pressure of what they perceived to be increased costs around them, whether it's interest rates, which sure. is not a function of any provincial government policy or even federal government policy, it's just the way the Bank of Canada makes these decisions, and, and, and then hydro rates and taxes and all that. And all Doug Ford really has to do for that group is do one thing, release the valve a little bit, let them feel a little, and he uses this term a lot, relief. Yeah, relief, exactly. right? It's like indigestion that these yeah. people have. And so, in a way, that's the first mandate. Then he can say, we're then going to audit the books, and before we can do anything else, we got to see what kind of mess we're in, because I expect that we're likely going to see. Yes. And, and there is some concern, even among his own voters, that 
you know, the fiscal responsibility of, of, of how do you manage this budget, mm -hmm. given all the promises you, you want to do, but also the challenges the province already was in. And, and there's a bit of a, a, a risk, and I, I think it, for the Conservatives, in that uh, people do remember the Mike Harris era, and municipalities remember the Mike Harris era. And when you say you're going to cut 4% across the board, people, it, it, it can work for you in a campaign. You can get away with it a little bit, which I think you did, as much as the NDP tried to hammer home the, what's that going to cost you in Brampton in terms of hospitals? What's that going to cost you in Cambridge in terms of nurses available? It didn't sink in enough. But one, the easiest way to cut 4% without cutting something that people will feel is to download costs to the municipalities. So over a four-year mandate, there is enough time there for municipalities to start feeling that pain and to start uh, then being opponents to you at Queen's Park at the same time as there's only one taxpayer. So whether I'm paying for it in municipal taxes, federal taxes, or provincial taxes, I'm upset about those taxes. So uh, we'll have to see whether or not the Conservatives have learned any lessons from uh, the common sense revolution and how that ended up hurting them in the end of the ballot box. So what does the first 100 days look like? I mean, we've moved from broad mandate to now, okay, implementing agenda, managing a government. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you expect or what you've, what you've heard about not only, I don't need to know what the cabinet's going to look like, but how will, how will cabinet government run under Ford? Is it going to be a tightly controlled center, or is he going, do you think he's going to have a leadership style that allows some senior ministers to kind of operate in their... Their space. I think we have to be mindful of how many new faces are around this government. Uh, about 50 of the 76 MPPs that were elected are brand new first-time legislators, uh, which is a major learning curve for a lot of people to come in and learn the ropes that way. We saw that they had an orientation session this week at Queen's Park, uh, and, and Doug Ford very much laid it out very clearly to them. You know, we're going to be focused, uh, we're going to be teamwork driven, uh, but we're going to be a disciplined government. And every action that you take, uh, I expect to be governed with the people in mind. So every policy and mandate that they push out is, it has to be framed around, is this going to benefit regular people? Um, in terms of what that means for, for cabinet and decision making, I think it means lean. Uh, I think it means we'll have a small cabinet. Uh, there will be a number of new faces there, some returning faces. I think, you know, uh, people like, like Dick Fideli and Lisa McLeod are, are natural choices for a cabinet because of their experience. Um, but I do think that it will be small. Uh, I think mandates will be very, very specific. Uh, and be, again, there will be little room to stretch beyond the four-year mandate and those commitments uh, until they are achieved. Uh, very much not unlike, uh, you know, the, the Deliverology 2015 mindset. Right. Here's your list of priorities. Uh, reach them and, and meet them. I see that being a very similar style. So, so given, is anyone diff different point of view on that? No, I just, I, I agree with that. And I think if Doug Ford was smart, he would try and take a different approach than Kathleen Wynne took when it comes to um, all the decisions her ministers made. She wanted to wear that. She wanted to be the face of every decision. And some of them weren't, weren't good decisions. So she still, she had to take the backfall. She had to take the positives. She had to take the negatives. And ultimately, I think that was a major thing that costed her is her face plastered all over everything. So if Doug Ford was smart, I think he would give, give his ministers a little leeway to make the decisions. Yeah, just to back up Kristen's point, let's look at the trend line from the campaign. Uh, conservatives were 
just drifting a little bit down, a little bit down as the NDP was surging all the way until Doug Ford realized maybe I shouldn't be the only face of this campaign. Maybe I should have a press conference and bring out all the excellent candidates I have. So if he's smart enough, he'd use that bench because I think they're the best asset he has. And I mean, it, it is something him. to note, and I, I, I'll have to go back in the history books, but I don't recall both in Ontario or even federally that a first time elected leader has as high negatives as Mr. Ford does. Basically one in two Ontarians. Right, so he starts out in a challenging position in that, and we know from research that that creates a filter, right? I think we already, ha we live in a society where we just don't trust people we don't agree with naturally, and so that's already a starting point that he's gonna have to somehow, not to, not, he can win without them, and we're talking pure politics, but from a governing perspective, to get buy-in from the policies, to get people to do the things you want them to do, I think will be a, a little bit of a challenge. So how do you then, then you know, say you're, you're advising clients or organizations whose mandate or agenda doesn't clearly line up with, with, with you know, for the people platform. How do they then approach the way that they frame their issues, the way that they interact with this government going forward then, Robin? Well, I was just going to say, uh, I, I don't agree with much of Kate, but I trust her a great deal, so I was going to let her go first, but uh, <laughs> you throw me into this. So look, uh, don't think that you understand Doug Ford as a conservative necessarily. Uh, he's not your prototypical conservative. Uh, he is a bit of a populist. Uh, and I think he doesn't want to pick a lot of fights that he can't win. So I would target people that do agree with you, be those municipalities. Uh, I would frame your issue in a little bit of a different light. What, how is this good for Ontario being an efficiently run government, uh, an efficient society, cost savings? Uh, and don't assume that he's going to take the natural conservative side of every issue, because I think he will respond to those popular uprisings. So your advocacy has to be that much more sophisticated, that much more uh, publicly driven. Uh, so you have to pave the way for your public policy. You need to make sure that you understand how certain communities and certain uh, and, and demographics um, uh, would support it. Because look at that demographic support. He won with uh, women over 45. Uh, he definitely didn't win with uh, young people, but they didn't come out and vote. So right. I think there's opportunity there. But Kate will tell me. One, one moment before you, I just want to let our audience know, um, in a few moments, I'm going to come to you. If you have any questions, uh, tweet them at me or use the hashtag uh, on pulse. And uh, we'll, we'll ask questions of the panel or of myself in a moment. Um, on that note, though, Kristen, you were going to yeah, jump in. Yeah, no, Sorry. I just, um, I just wanted to talk on, you have to I think when you have a change of government, it's like a blank slate for stakeholders. Like they, when they have been advocating um, for their causes for the last 15 years to the same government. So that's kind of like the same messaging, same values, same everything, whereas PCs were there, very stark contrast. You kind of have a blank slate. You have to take a step back. And it is an opportunity for stakeholders to look back on what has worked in the past, what didn't work, and a brand new approach um, going forward. Yeah, most of Queen's Park is new, new MPPs. So just like the 2015 federal MPPs. got a lot of uh, opportunity there yeah. uh, I would just contribute that we've seen through the course of the campaign I'm thinking about the green belt uh, I'm thinking now about some some news that's just coming out around some some modification to those green energy um, or the green rebate programs that have been announced it sounds like there's maybe some flexibility there to ensure that people don't uh, lose money on that I see uh, the Ford government as being reasonable and when they are presented with a compelling case as to why uh, a particular measure would be harmful for uh, a group that they care about uh, or a constituency that they care about, I think that there is room to move. So I, I think that uh, Robin is quite right to identify that we shouldn't make assumptions 
around a Ford government. Yes, there's going to be cuts. Uh, people shouldn't be under the illusion that every government program that has existed for the last 15 years will continue to exist in its same form, mm -hmm. uh, because that would be that would be naive to think that. Uh, so think about how you can frame your value proposition as supporting the uh, the mandate of this government, uh, how you can save money, uh, how you can support a group that they care about. Uh, and if there is something that the government's doing that is not reasonable uh, or doesn't align with their mandate, maybe they haven't thought it all the way through, present that in a reasonable way and you may be surprised at, at the reaction you get back. Just very quickly, the Ontario economy is growing right now. And the last thing Doug Ford and the Conservatives want is that to change or to do anything that could suggest that they have been not good stewards of the economy. So frame your issues from an economic message and you're likely going to do well with that. And that means an economic message that benefits uh, people that beyond just those who voted for the PCs. You, you, you all work with a lot of clients at the federal level, and we're not going to get into too much about the federal implications of Doug Ford uh, on federalism and the relationship with the federal government. But given the how do I say this in a nice way, the uncertainty or volatility of the U.S. administration. How does Doug Ford play into strategy for some of your clients that, you know, are, are obviously dealing with the federal government, but they, I, but perhaps and given that, you know, uh, Minister Freeland went and met uh, the Premier-designate very early after the election, indicates to me that they see him, despite being maybe a, a, a challenge on some of their policy fronts, could be an ally on some others or, or very useful. Is there a way to, to use the premier, the new premier, the new administration, not use him, but um, as part of a strategy with other files that might not necessarily be about provincial policy? Yeah. I mean, we also have the reality of a federal election next October. Uh, most people uh, in Ottawa are going to be turning their attention to that, we're certainly turning our attention to that because we just love ourselves a good election and we can't have, you know, it's only been two weeks and we're excited about the next one. Um, but in terms of how uh, strategies could be leveraged federally and how your provincial advocacy could be leveraged federally, uh, I would just keep in mind that there's a lot of industry in the province of Ontario. The province of Ontario is critically important from a voter perspective uh, for the Trudeau government. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we saw with the Freeland visit that uh, Ford was not combative. Uh, he was on side. Uh, and I, I think there's no real interest or intent to be unnecessarily combative with the federal government. Uh, Doug Ford has a little bit of an easier challenge, frankly, than somebody like Andrew Scheer uh, in this whole U.S.-Canada context right now because Doug Ford's uh, opponent is not uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, so he can say uh, Donald Trump is doing a, a, a bad job. Um, Andrew Scheer has to walk a little bit of a finer line there between, um, you know, supporting Canada but pointing out why Justin Trudeau's policies are not right. So uh, Doug Ford's got a bit of an easier challenge that way, but I would say don't forget about the economic impact in Ontario uh, and the number of industries here and work to leverage that uh, with your federal advocacy. Yeah, I mean, Doug Ford is a double-edged sword for Justin Trudeau. He's fantastic as a foil. Uh, he's that kind of Donald Trump-styled opponent that Justin Trudeau, to progressive, starts looking really good. Uh, but he's also on policy, the big-picture policy agendas of carbon pricing and pharmacare. He's, he's a real challenge. Uh, so uh, what was interesting to see, though, was on Thursday, I think, on a Thursday, it was uh, Freeland and Doug Ford standing together in solidarity against uh, U.S. tariffs. On Friday, it was Doug Ford announcing that they were going to pull out uh, the carbon pricing scheme and they were going to sue the federal government. So that shows you how you have 
to work with the Ontario Premier at the same time as he's going to be a thorn in your side. So from an advocacy perspective, uh, you're quite right, David, in pointing out that, I mean, the manufacturing sector, uh, you know, a lot of the, the parts of the economy that are threatened by uh, North American uh, the tenuous North American trade agreement are in Ontario, right. uh, and we need Ontario to continue to grow. So uh, the federal government needs the industries that are in Doug Ford's backyard. Uh, so if you are a stakeholder involved in that, uh, you have an opportunity to, to to work with those two two leaders on things that they might not generally always agree on, but they both need you to succeed. And I just really would quickly add um, for those that are watching that may have uh, some kind of. Um, role in the carbon taxing, uh, carbon tax environmental industries. Doug Ford is going to give Ontario voters a taste within the first six months of his mandate of what it's like to not be under that kind of a regime. Uh, he's made the 10 cents off gas uh, the number one priority, uh, so he's going to try to show relief there. Will Justin Trudeau want to come back to voters sometime in January and say, well, I understand that you've had some relief now, um, but we're going to impose our own carbon tax on you because it's the right thing to do for the environment and then fight an election in that same province yeah. 10 months later. I'm not sure that that's a decision they want to take. And we have to keep in mind about 80% of Canada's population come next year is going to be represented by leaders, by premiers uh, that do not support the carbon tax. If Jason well, let's not make some massive assumptions yeah. here. Uh, uh, just, just very quickly on that, I mean, just because, you know, we've got to fact check these things here. Uh, you could easily bring 10 cents a litre down with not actually removing the carbon pricing scheme in Ontario. You can do that through the excise task and a number of other things. Uh, I already see the PCs are borrowing the NDP playbook on trying to get, uh, crack down on uh, gas uh, pr uh, companies in terms of uh, price regulation. Uh, but the other thing, if you're an environmental group, if you are a supporter of carbon pricing, say you benefit from cap and trade, uh, there are ways that you can work with the federal government and work with provincial stakeholders to enforce how important that carbon pricing scheme is because, uh, and I, you can already hear Catherine McKenna and the Liberals talking about this, uh, Ontarians, like in, those in Alberta, can benefit from a cap, cap and trade or carbon pricing scheme because that money can be returned to your pocketbooks through tax cuts. Uh, in Alberta, if you make less than $60,000 a year as an individual, you are not feeling the effect of their carbon price. You're actually, uh, that's actually a boon to you in terms of your pocketbook or a neutral. So uh, I don't think it's going to be as simple as that for Doug Ford, but Kate's entirely right. That's got to be an objective because he's in a fight right now that I think most legal experts would say uh, is, is not exactly winnable. So let's just shift gears slightly and talk about the opposition. Um, we have a new opposition. Uh, you mean the official opposition? The official opposition, opposition. the new Democrats. Uh, how are they going to approach sort of this new task that they, that they have? I, I mean, we've heard from Andrea Horvath this mm -hmm. week about how she's going to hold, you know, as every new opposition leader says, we're going to hold the government to account. We're going to represent all the people uh, that, that maybe they don't serve. You know, Robin, as, as the uh, new Democrat on the panel, um, what, what, could we, what can we expect, I guess, from, yeah. from, from, again, lots of new faces around that caucus table? Uh, how, how are the NDP going to approach this, you think? A lot of new faces, 50% women in that caucus, very diverse, not something uh, in the past that the NDP has been able to boast about uh, in terms of the caucus. Uh, look, what's really interesting for Andrew Horvath and NDP strategists is they have the 2011 to 2015 federal NDP official opposition to learn from. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not necessarily uh, something that you want to emulate. It's easy if you are a progressive opposition, if you are the NDP, a social democrat, to oppose a Doug Ford-led government. That is easy to do, and you will win over progressive voters every time you hammer them in the, at Queen's Park, and every time you stand up or oppose or uh, succeed in stopping something they want to do. 
Does that make you a government in waiting? Not necessarily, as Tom Mulcair and the NDP will tell you. Tom Mulcair hammered Stephen Harper day in and day out, opposed his policies, opposed the regressive regime, uh, but did not convince the voters that they were the uh, progressive solution. Right. So I think Andrew Horvath and the NDP will spend a lot more time organizing on the ground. I think part of the reason they lost this election was they didn't have the electoral machine and all those ridings that they came second in. And the NDP came first and second in the vast majority of uh, ridings in Ontario. I think it'll also be about proposition. So, so what would be different? What would this look like? What would Ontario look like right now if Andrew Horvath was premier? I think you'll see that a lot more uh, as they try to not let the Liberals kind of outflank them on the uh, on the left while they're ho holding Doug Ford to account. Yeah, and I just want to go back to um, campaigns and do they matter? It really did matter for NDP Andrea Horvath. She, someone who was a leader for the last ten years, and nobody really knew who she was. And I think if I'm looking back at debates, she had no problem standing her own. She had a backbone. She really, whether it was going to be a PC government or a Liberal government, she was going to hold them to account. And I think. That is kind of what we're going to see on the official opposition. I think she did very, very well, and I think that's what we can come to expect from her. Yeah, I think that this, Kristen hits a good point there. Uh, Andrew Horvath's popular, and she's popular because for 28 days, Ontarians got to see her. Uh, when she was the third party leader, they never saw her. And she was actually more, I saw an abacus number, something interesting, more Ontarians knew something about Andrew Horvath in 2014 than they did going into the 2018 election. Yeah. So what that tells me is that the spotlight will help. And they need to maximize that. Leverage her favorability. I mean, she went up by 14 points in terms of favorability while Doug Ford declined over the election. So she needs to use that opposition uh, limelight to build her own profile. Right. Uh, I. I think that Andrea Horvath is a great campaigner, and I think the data supports that. People like her in a campaign. They come around. I, uh, not to be too partisan, I'm less convinced that Andrea Horvath will be an effective leader of the official opposition. This is a huge opportunity for the NDP to really carve out their space in Ontario's political circle. They will never have another opportunity like the one they have with a, a you know, totally unorganized Liberal Party than they do right now. Uh, I think they need to come out early with ideas and policies that are different than the PCs and make people comfortable with those policies so that way it's not a surprise four years later uh, when she's asking for their support. Uh, I question whether or not uh, she's going to have the fortitude to go through a fourth campaign um, and whether or not the NDP grassroots uh, want to see that happen. I'm not an NDP grassroots activist, so I can't say. We'd welcome you. But <laughs> I'm sure you would. Uh, but in any event, I, I think that she's excellent in a campaign. I'm not sure that she's going to be able to harness this unique opportunity, though it is an opportunity. I, I think one of the lessons probably from tw like 2011 to 2015 for the federal NDP is in the we admit it, I've, I've heard others uh, working in the party say like you, you had this, you built a forest without any roots, right? Mm -hmm. And so building the roots, one of the, we, I didn't share the data, but when we ask people, you know, how do you identify? Yeah. At the end of, the, like after the election, there were more people who identified, almost double the number of people who identified as being a liberal than being a new Democrat, despite the fact that the it's votes were almost reverse, yeah. which suggests one for liberals, there's hope. Right, and we saw again federally find a Justin Trudeau, Don't and you can go from out. third to first, and you know everything's rosy again. But on the flip side, I think for the New Democrats, they've got to find a way to to convert those voters who voted for them, maybe for the first time, into New Democrat supporters, oh, right? And then then figure out the next five percent. Where yeah, do we get the next five? We might have, you know 
shaken off the shackles of Bob Ray in this election. So I think we just turned the page that yeah. is significant to perhaps building up that core support because it's not just the core supporters who vote for you. I mean, a lot of New Democrats have voted Liberal the last two elections in Ontario, uh, and we brought some of those voters home. Now what we need to do, as you say, is build that party up a bit. Our brand is stronger. Uh, we have a good leader who's popular. So let's convert Social Democrats to New Democrats. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it will be a fascinating time in terms of how uh, the NDP and the Liberals as well define where they are on the political spectrum in Ontario. I think there might be a, a temptation for the NDP to perhaps move a bit to the centre, occupy some of that space that the Liberals have had for a very long time. But maybe a Liberal leader comes around that's even further to the left, and, and I would argue that, you know, in the past that's worked. Justin Trudeau, Tom Mulcair is a good example, uh, carving out that space uh, for the Liberals. It, it's going to be fascinating to see kind of where the NDP move on that spectrum and where the Liberals position and the new leader, whoever he or she may be, position themselves. So just back to, again, advocacy and GR, like, uh, no, the way I view it is if you are, you know, the CEO of a fairly large company in Ontario, or anywhere really for that matter these days, you probably are feeling that your influence on government policy has probably never been lower, right? And you think, I think about, despite the fact we, that Ontario just elected a conservative government, which traditionally you'd think is more in, more in line with the views of Bay Street than Main Street and so on. I don't see any, I mean, none of the rhetoric and none of really the policies He wants coming. to fire the CEO of a private company. I mean. And he's, and he's <laughs> talking about regulating gas prices. Yeah. And, and like, so this is, is so again, if you're, if, you're, if you're advising senior executives at big companies, after an election that, again, I don't think was populist, far-right nationalist populism, but it was certainly anti-intellectual, it was certainly anti-institutional, big institutions are bad and I'm gonna fight for the little guy. How, again, do you approach your government relations, how you build relationships with a government who has no interest, either because you can't fundraise from them anymore, and two, you can't want, you don't want to be seen, you know, putting your arms around CEOs of, of Bay Street companies. How do you approach the, the premier's office and the minister's office in, in that kind of environment? I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. Uh, look, I, first of all, don't let the for the people mask of a conservative campaign fool you entirely. Yes, David, you're right. The agenda and the mantra of this, of this leader and this party was not necessarily your typical conservative, but that's because it was designed to work. Uh, it wasn't going to work to go out there and talk about um, uh, talk about how you're going to support the boardrooms of Ontario. Let's remember they're still cutting corporate taxes. Let's remember they're still cutting taxes in general for the wealthiest Ontarians. Most of those people, or most CEOs, tend to be um, in that class. Uh, so, the, the, but the, but for companies that uh, that perhaps don't have a direct influence, make it local. I mean, we have so many new uh, PC MPPs, new MPPs in general. Uh, it's all about talking about your impact on the community on the ground in terms of jobs. That works with any political party. Right. And that certainly will work with a, a kind of grassroots-driven uh, PC party and PC leader. Uh, and Doug Ford is a businessman himself, uh, runs a business, or sorry, uh, owns a business. I uh, don't know how much he actually runs that business, as we learned during the campaign. But uh, you also do have very corporate-minded uh, front bench. Uh, and you know the Rod Phillips of the world, the Carolyn Mulroney's of the world, Christine Elliott. So uh, I, I do not fret uh, boardrooms of Ontario. Uh, and the other thing too is okay. take a broad uh, uh, take a broad lens here because yes, the cabinet is going to be key, but uh, there's a lot of new people, and, and Doug Ford needs to unite that caucus and keep it united. Yeah, and I would just add to that um, the concern on uh, support for corporate Ontario. Um, 
that that is driven much more towards publicly funded uh, organizations and, and groups. If you receive government funding, think very critically now about why that funding is necessary to your operation uh, and to future operations. One thing that Doug Ford talked about a lot during the campaign was uh, economic growth and development in, in the North, for example. So if you are an organization that, or, or a company uh, that has something to offer there, um, you're, you've never been better positioned. So I would say, uh, you know, Robin's advice, uh, don't, don't fret too much. I, I think this is a, a huge and unprecedented opportunity for, for small businesses and medium-sized businesses to step up and say, you know, we can, we can help grow the province, but there's been so much red tape and regulation in the way until now that we need that to be fixed before we can, before we can do that. So I think that this is an opportunity for those businesses. All right. Before I give you the final... Final comments, I'm going to do a little flash round. Yes or no answers to these questions, oh, okay? In four years from now, whenever the next election comes, will we have beer and wine in convenience stores in Ontario? Yes. Probably. Yes. Will uh, there be independent retailers for cannabis in Ontario, not run by uh, LCBO? No. Uh, I, I want to change my answer because Kate said no. Uh, look, I don't actually, I think there will be more than just the LCBO perhaps, but I don't think it's going to be a, the, the free reign that you're seeing now because that's not good to the PC brand at all. That's right. Okay. Great. Some kind of hybrid. <laughs> okay, we'll start with, on the other side. Will there be a balanced budget at any point in this mandate? No. Did you not see that in a cost of platform? <laughs> of course not. Yeah, you're four. You're four? I think so. You get there? Okay. Um, he, said, he said, he was up front in saying not the first two, I think. By, I think he will want to run on a balanced budget in the final year. Okay. Um, so on that front, <laughs> any uh, maybe last comments? We'll start with Kristen. We'll work this way. Um, any any last thing advice, I guess, you give to, to those watching, and we'll watch this in future podcasts. I don't know about advice, but I'm just going to say don't count the Liberals out. I think we are going to be in a much better position in 2022 than we were in 2018. We can refer that back to the federal Liberals. We went from third-party status to majority government with a new... A young, charismatic leader, I think, um, don't count us out yet. I think the Liberals will come back. Okay. I'm afraid that's entirely possible, but Sorry, uh, it gets better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I take, take a broad approach in terms of advocacy, especially, uh, that uh, work with the opposition, work with the government, work with people in your community. Uh, this is a very different Queen's Park, uh, and while it might be a centralized government at start, uh, it's going to be a government that wants to listen to a decentralized audience. Yeah. Uh, engage early, engage soon. Um, everybody's coming back uh, at the end of next week. Uh, we hear there'll be a summer sitting. Uh, there's going to be a speech from the throne. There will be a whole new budget process. There will be new committees, uh, mandates for those committees and ministers. So uh, right now is a very important time to become engaged in provincial politics if you haven't been uh, if you haven't been until now or if you've been waiting to see uh, what the election would bring, the opportunity and time to engage is, uh, is right away. Well, thank you uh, so much, Kate Harrison, Robin McLaughlin, Kristen Wilton from Summa Strategies Canada, summa.ca. Go visit yeah. them. If you found them uh, as enlightening as I did, um, follow them on Twitter, uh, <laughs> subscribe to their newsletter. Also visit our partners at Spark Advocacy. They do some impressive work. If you live in Ottawa, you've seen it on the streets or in the airports or on your uh, Twitter feeds. My name is David Coletto uh, from Abacus Data. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and uh, we'll be back at another point soon enough. Have a great day.